This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosnier. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads. And we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class. From HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I've been sending Katie pictures of Egypt all week. I've sent her a picture of an ibis, an ancient temple, a mongoose. And at one point I even got distracted and drew a laser ibis in Microsoft Paint. That was a highlight of my week in Outlook. (laughs) But usually distraction during podcast research is not a good thing. In this case, I'm going to cite the spirit of Napoleon Savants, who themselves were kings of embracing distraction. And we've already given you some background on Napoleon's expedition to Egypt, the Battle of the Pyramids, the devastating defeat at the Battle of Abukir Bay. Things get worse for France as the army has to face a triple threat, the Turks, the Brits, and La Peste, or the Plague. And the result is a major military failure and terrible violence and destruction in Egypt. Fortunately, this episode is dedicated to the French expedition that did not fail. It was an intellectual expedition that shaped the science of archaeology. It launched Egyptomania, and it eventually unearthed the key to the secret history of the pharaohs, which we'll get to pretty soon. So first, you have to wonder why Napoleon brought these savants with him. And there are a few reasons why it pays to bring a cadre of intellectuals along for the war. And to break it down simply, we'll give you uh, four points here. One, who knows what Egypt will be like? The army will need men who can survey, who can find water, and who can make maps. Men who can observe and invent and manufacture on the fly. Exactly. And they'll also need men who are diplomatic and the perfect ambassadors of French culture and democracy to a conquered land. This oh, is... and, and what a conquered land it is. <laughs> yeah. The savants will help record and make sense of what they see in Egypt and uh, stuff the Louvre and build very impressive natural history collections and bring Egypt back to France. And finally, perhaps most importantly, they'll make Napoleon look good. It sounds like something his hero Alexander the Great would do. Absolutely. And plus, Napoleon, we've got to give him credit for this. He really likes science. He's this sort of honorary member of the French Institute, but he takes it really seriously. He signs 
he signs himself for his letters as a member of the French Institute. He loves science. So as Napoleon plans his secret mission to Egypt, he authorizes three men to create his Commission of Sciences and Arts. And they are Gaspard Monge, who's uh, very good at math, Claude-Louis Berthollet, who's a chemist, and Joseph Fourier, another mathematician. And those that round up his little crew of savants. The commission's total comes to 151. And some are well-established in their fields, but many are fresh out of school, 36 of them are students. Their median age is 25, and bum, 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 31 will die. (laughs) We're just saying this because these guys do not know what they're getting into, but because they're going with Napoleon, they think it's going to be really great. It's not. Well, you know, (laughs) subject to opinion. Maybe if you're not one of the dead ones. Not the dead ones. So they probably get a taste of just how adventurous this expedition is going to be. On the boat ride from France, the established scientists berthed with officers and attended salons on Napoleon's own flagships, having these very heady discussions. What do dreams mean? What is the ideal form of government? But these students are with the lowest of the soldiers and sailors. They're seasick. They're getting their blankets stolen. I, I have to imagine them <laughs> just getting punched in the, sol- the shoulder. Hey, Poindexter, <laughs> give me your pillow. With a nuggie. <laughs> exactly. So they're not having the best trip, but I guess they're still excited. And the 400-ship flotilla finally arrives in Alexandria on July 1st, 1798, and We've in our earlier episode, we we already know what happens to most of the army and the navy from here. Fortunately for the savants, most of them are spared that grueling desert march and the Battle of the Pyramids. They stay in Alexandria and Rosetta, which is even nicer than Alexandria, until Napoleon secures Cairo. They get to travel by boat instead of foot across the desert. They do have that one devastating event, though. The a ship that held nearly all of their equipment sank. So that's kind of a big deal if you're a scientist. Yeah. So after the Battle of the Pyramids and the flight of the Mameluke leader, Murad Bey, Napoleon secures Cairo. We've we've covered this part. But with the city in his pocket, Napoleon decides that he wants to form a something like the French National Institute, a collection of all these learned men where they can meet, they can pitch their theories and their ideas and discuss, have have intellectual conversations. It's an official club that will also conveniently tackle some of his most pressing questions. So Monge and Berthollet scout the city for suitable quarters because this building's got to be huge. It's going to hold labs, a museum, a library, an observatory, a printing press, a zoo, everything these savants will need. Sarah really wants to go. And they find a complex of recently vacated Mameluke palaces that will do the trick. I'm picturing it like apartment shopping, but for rent. Yeah, walking into a Mameluke palace. Would be for let, probably. <laughs> a little classier than instead rent. of my midtown apartment. So their first meeting is in late August seventeen ninety eight and it's held in the harem room, which I imagine is not like our conference room. Apparently it's sort of the quiet, nicest room in the in these old buildings. So I guess it makes sense to, to set up shop there. But Napoleon starts them off with really practical projects, like how can we make better ovens? How can we treat the Nile water? How can we make beer without hops? 
And, you know, they are, they are practical questions and the savants do get to work on them. But soon they're, they're more interested in all of the amazing new things they're seeing in Egypt for the first time. Mange gets into studying mirages. The naturalist Etienne Geoffroy Saint-Hilaire, um, gets into these proto-Darwinian theories and Berthollet starts studying the natron that's used to preserve mummies. So some really cool stuff. And major advances in their fields to chemistry and, and all that. So the Institute of Egypt, though, can't ever quite function like it's supposed to, which is, of course, communicating with the French Institute back home. They would share knowledge and be able to feed off of each other. This doesn't happen, obviously, because after the French defeat at Abukir Bay, the British can intercept all their messages. So you don't have supplies anymore, but you also don't have communication with France, unless it's bad news coming yeah, they to would, France. They would send the, the lonely, sad letters about how, how they missed their oh, home. Oh, that's so embarrassing for the, the savants. Yeah, they're, they're sending letters back home to the Institute and to their families, like, why haven't we heard from you? I really miss you so much. Egypt is not quite what I hoped it would be. And the British intercept these and publicize them and just sort of use them to mock the savants. There are some other setbacks. There's this Cairo uprising where several of the scholars are killed because their lovely Institute Palace is a mile away from all the soldiers, so it takes them quite a long time to get there. So their work is is already dangerous and hard, and then when Napoleon starts sending his scholars on missions, it gets even harder. Yeah, so we mentioned that 36 of the men are just students. Some of them are really, really young in their, in their teens. And in late October, they take their final, which interestingly is around the same time their, their fellow students back at home are taking <laughs> their finals. Week. Um, they all pass and they sort of achieve a more equal footing than they have. But that's 36 more guys that Napoleon can send on his craziest mission because he doesn't just want these people as cultural ambassadors. He wants them as engineers to scout the land, to find the water, all of that, the really important stuff. Now it's time to pick what they want to do, and they have the choice of joining the military engineers or the Corps of Bridges and Roads. And again, you can imagine that would be a little disappointing. You'd rather be on the Corps of Pyramids, yes. perhaps, <laughs> or of mummies. The engineers are put to work at mapping and hydrology because the main existing Egyptian map had seriously been done by a guy from his chair. So he's just existing measurements, drawing out Egypt, piece things together. But this job is is dangerous to go out and do all this mapping. They require escorts. It's very hot. The Bedouins are on the attack. Well, part of the issue is by this point, the French military has started a a policy of seizing camels. The the savants are nicer. They'll buy your, your camel from you. But the French are getting a pretty bad reputation in Egypt by this point, and the savants are suffering because of it. Their other main project is trying to see if they could possibly build a canal at Suez. Is, it can't As be done can't at all. Be done, yeah. So the danger of checking calculations twice leads to some errors because it's difficult to keep going out on these dangerous forays into the desert. Plus, they've lost their, their modern tools. They're relying on whatever they can. They're doing what they can. And it's determined incorrectly that the Red Sea is higher than the Mediterranean. So that is what happens when you can't measure twice. Yeah, they don't want to flood Egypt with salt water. But not everything is so terrible before we make this sound like, sound like the worst 
possible vacation ever. The court does find the Rosetta Stone in July 1799 near an old crusader fort. We may have we may have even mentioned the fort in one of our Crusader podcasts. Who knows? So the Rosetta Stone, Candace and Jane have already done an episode on it. But of course, it's the eventual key to unlocking the language of the gods. Uh, before it's found and decoded, people didn't even know how old the Egyptian civilization was. They didn't know who the gods were, what the Egyptians did. Just imagine its heads in the desert buried in sand. It has no meaning attached to it. So this discovery is something the soldiers and the savants can all be happy about and share with France, you know, their their big, fabulous thing that they did. And the commission member, Conte, makes some prints of the stone to send back to Paris. And amazingly, they make it through, but it's their last contact for two years. So that's some more doom for you. But... Time to backtrack a little bit and and give you a little more information about these cool antiquities and the ruins and the things like that that people associate with this mission. So one of our savants who hasn't been to Cairo in the past year has instead been trailing the Mameluke Murad Bay all around Upper Egypt. So remember how after we talked about the Battle of the Pyramids, Murad Bay heads south and trails this group of the French army behind him for nine months, just leading him on a wild goose chase, essentially. Well, Dominique vivant Denon decides to join the general leading this mission in his pursuit of Murad Bay, and he ends up getting the grand tour of Upper Egypt before anyone else does. It sounds like a good trip, aside from the terrible danger, I guess. Well, yeah, because people already knew what was in Alexandria. They knew about the pyramids and the Sphinx. But they didn't really have a good idea about all of the other things out there, the temples, the Valley of the Kings. Denon gets to fly through Thebes, Karnak, and Philae because, of course, they're chasing this this rebel leader. He'll beg for 15 minutes to draw something and to say the general, say, okay, 15 minutes, and then we, we got to go. <laughs> so he gets his quick sketches, but that's about it. And his impressions of ancient Egypt are the first thing that the people back home see. So he, he starts off this craze for all things Egypt. But when he runs into a group of the young engineers who are out doing their hydrographic survey in May 1799, he shows them some of his sketches and tells them about Dendara and its zodiac and gives them the idea maybe if we could decode this zodiac, we might figure out how old the ancient Egyptian civilization really is. So these young engineers, they persuade their superiors to let them spend more time surveying the temples. You know, we finished our our hydrology work. Let us go draw these things. And this is real drafting, not just sketching like Danon did. And they spend the summer of 1799 doing it. And they... They are systematic about it. They use a grid system, and they risk falling into scary holes and running into bats. And Dandara had actually been used as a storage bin, essentially, for freshly (laughs) executed bodies. So it's a creepy place, but still pretty cool. Pretty cool. So meanwhile, Dinan has returned to Cairo and shown Napoleon his sketches. And Napoleon authorizes two antiquities commissions to venture into Upper Egypt. When the commissions arrived in September 1799, everyone gets to work recording everything, like 
real archaeologists would. This is yeah. kind of where archaeology started. Yeah. They even form these human chains to make sure they're they're going over every little piece of ground. And, of course, they do have to fend off bats while they're doing it, as we mentioned. <laughs> Sounds terrible. So this this project is is the prize. It is the best of the best for most of I these scholars. I think this is the golden age for this mission, definitely. But um, things... Things don't really get that much better after this. In fact, they get a lot worse because after authorizing the Antiquities Commission, it's about the last thing Napoleon does in Egypt before he leaves secretly, just like he came. And admittedly, he has had a very bad year since that naval disaster at Abukir Bay. There was the Cairo uprising. There was a really bloody, very disturbing scene at Jaffa. And a never-ending failed siege at Acre against a guy named the Butcher. So that gives you a pretty a formidable enemy. Good idea. Plus the plague. And the plague was so bad on the battlefield that it's rumored Napoleon may have ordered his own soldiers euthanized. He denies it. Others say it happened. Katie we and I have know. been having a moral debate about it. <laughs> we have. Plus, the news from home isn't very good either. And like we said, the British are letting the bad news get to Napoleon, just not letting any normal exchange of letters get through. So he finds out France is at war with Austria again, and the French forces have been kicked out of Germany and Italy, and the directory clearly is not going to last much longer. And Napoleon, a very ambitious man, obviously wants to be in France for whatever happens next. And he takes three of his savants with him, Berthollet, Monge, and Denon. And Denon's early arrival at home allows him to publish his sketches of Upper Egypt, which becomes a bestseller. And while the French are happy that Napoleon's back, the savants are devastated that he's left. And he's left a general in charge, General Jean-Baptiste Kleber. And he wants to conclude the war, but he's gotten permission to keep the savants as long as they're useful. And he wants to protect his legacy, so they're not going home anytime soon, or at least not until they've finished their project as best they can. Basically not until everyone goes home. Uh, but Kleber makes very fast pro- progress on getting the French out of Egypt. Napoleon is saying, if things don't get better within a year, you can start negotiating. Kleber starts negotiating within four months, and he's ready to to work out a surrender and he ends up forming the Convention of Al-Arish with the Ottomans. It Basically, it means the Turks will pay France's way home. France will get to keep all their arms, but they'll get out of Egypt. They'll get out of Cairo. Unfortunately, the British won't honor this agreement that the French have made with the Turks. But too bad for the French. The Turks still plan on claiming Cairo in 10 days. So they're getting their side of the bargain, but they don't. I mean, the French aren't getting theirs. The French are, are between a rock and a hard place. And they have to keep fighting the Turks instead of working out this agreement where the Turks pay for them to go home. They just keep on fighting. It seems like it will never end. It does end for Kleber. He is stabbed by a fanatic. And that's a major loss for the savants because most of the military hasn't ever been too gung-ho about the scientists and about why they're there in the first place. <laughs> this is very Avatar, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, imagine they're going out on these dangerous missions to collect bugs and to collect birds and stuff like that. The soldiers think the scientists might be hoarding treasure if if it's not just stuffed animals in their packages. 
But the new guy in charge really, really hates the savants, and it shows. He is General Jacques-Francois de Menou, who has converted to Islam, changed his name, and married an Egyptian wife. But most importantly, he's a colonialist who thinks France can hold Egypt. And of course, we know this is impossible. In the fall of 1800, the French army hasn't gotten paid. The Arabs are revolting. There are Turkish-French skirmishes all the time, and the British are secretly preparing a land assault, which... I mean, come on. That'll that'll be the end. It's not going to happen. So by the time the Turks advance on Cairo, the French are forced to surrender because they're being hit by plague again. Our guys are stuck in Cairo. They've they've been rounded up from all over Egypt when it seemed like Kleber was actually going to get them home. They've been stuck in Cairo. They don't have their nice Mameluke harem room digs anymore. And they're just in limbo. So... It's amazing that amid this chaos, they keep on holding institute meetings. And the final institute meeting is on March 22nd, 1801. And Saint-Hilaire talks about crocodiles. And this is an unfortunate episode uh, in this history. He's just giving a lecture about crocodiles. But the British get their hands on the report. And they start doing cartoons and stuff like he was trying to train the crocodiles. And you can actually see one of the cartoons. He's getting bitten by it. So embarrassing for the French. Finally, the scholars are ordered to Alexandria, and they risk sickness, death, and war to go and rescue their papers before evacuating. Get them out of Cairo. Yeah, which made me think of the bombardment of Baltimore. Yeah. And by this point, the French soldiers are more dangerous to the savants than the English. Yeah, they're they're trying to steal their stuff. I mean, they're really blaming them by this point for... They think they're the reason why they are in Egypt and why everything is so terrible. And they're trying to steal the treasure they think the savants have. And finally, the scholars get into Alexandria. It's under siege. There's no food. Amazingly, some are still working under these conditions. Um, Saint-Hilaire actually is coming up with his proto-Darwinian ideas at this point because he's, <laughs> I guess, thinking so broadly by this point that he's able to to come up with these ideas. And at this point, as Sarah said, Manu becomes our Savonarola. During their last month in Egypt, he toys with the scholars. He tells them they can't leave. And then, okay, they can leave if they leave everything with him, all of their research, um, they, their maps. And maybe if they promise they won't speak a single word of that mission when they go back to France. All he really wants is the Rosetta Stone, and he's taken it already. So these are just psychological games. He keeps it in his tent or something. So in July 1801, the savants finally board a ship. You're, you're thinking, at last, we're going back to France. No. We, we have our collections. No, you're not. They wait on the ship for one month until finally Saint-Hilaire and others rode ashore to beg Manu, please let us go home. Four days after that meeting, the French ship lifts anchor, starts to sail off, and then they get two cannon shots from a nearby English vessel. And two cannon shots are a warning, stop, don't go any further, or we'll sink you. Then, to make things even worse, they get word from Manu that he will sink their ship, sink the French boat, if they don't go. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. <laughs> exactly. So Fourier actually rose to the British to plead to let them leave. And eventually the British persuade Manu to let his own countrymen dock in Alexandria 
Again, that's that's so magnanimous. It's, Manu, it's thank you. Ridiculous. But August 31st, Manu capitulates. The Brits, of course, want all of the good booty from the collection, but Manu offers them the whole thing. Yeah, he says take every note, every stuffed bird, whatever every you Every artifact. Yeah, have it all. And the English are, are surprised by how good this work actually looks when they examine it. And they're thinking, well, this is a nice win for us and decide maybe since some of these Frenchmen spent so much time assembling these collections, we could bring some of them back to England and they could help us interpret them and manage the collections. The French want no part of this. After all, they've been away from home for years. They're ready to go back to France. So the scholars approach Manu and they're pleading for their collections, like, please try to work out some sort of agreement with the British. He writes the British the most snarky letter imaginable. So so pretend I'm Manu here. I have just been informed that several among our collection makers wish to follow their seeds, minerals, birds, butterflies, or reptiles wherever you choose to ship their crates. I do not know if they wish to have themselves stuffed for the purpose, but I can assure you that if the idea should appeal to them, I shall not prevent it. Ouch. (laughs) That's pretty harsh coming from your own general. So the scholars think that the British want not just... Not just that they want their collections, they want to steal their knowledge. Steal their ideas. So three of the naturalists go and lay down an ultimatum. And that's that, look, this is, this is basic work. These are notes and only we can interpret our own work. It's unfinished without our translations, without our interpretations. It's not going to mean anything to you. With a follow-up that we would rather destroy it than see you have it. And the official book that is eventually published recounts Saint-Hilaire's speech. Rather than allow this iniquitous despolation and vandalism, we will destroy our property. We will disperse it in the Libyan sands or we will throw it into the sea. Then we will protest in Europe and tell by what violence we were reduced to destroy so many treasures. And the British back down, as would I, if I had received such a missive. So by the end of September, they start boarding ships again. Only this time it works out. They're finally home by the end of 1801. So what awaits them in France? Obviously, a lot of these... A lot of these guys who went over as boys have grown up. You're coming back to a different scientific scene. And Napoleon has actually done quite well for himself. He's a consul now. And in February 1802, he authorizes the publication of a book, which will collect all the knowledge from the expedition. It takes him a while, though, to actually get the whole book out. No, it's not completed until 1828. So a lot of them are dead by the time it's finished. And if you'd like to imagine you're one of the first to get that book, um, what would these lucky 1,000 first edition subscribers have received? 23 enormous serial books bound in brown paper. They had linen pages 43 inches tall and 837 engravings for which Conte invented a special press. Yeah, you could, um, it took so much work to engrave the, the cloudless Egyptian skies that he invented a press where you could just sub it in behind each picture. Well, and the bonus was an Egyptian themed case to keep them in. That's some marketing. I would definitely spring for the case. (laughs) So the maps were supposed to be printed first just to give people a bit of an orientation about Egypt, but 
because they were considered state secrets, they came out last, by which point they were pretty outdated. Pictures of the flora and fauna are said to rival Audubon. And, of course, the archaeological sites, the, the drawings of, of all these temples and tombs start this craze for Egyptian dress, Egyptian architecture, and artifact collecting. This is the very beginning of the Rape of Egypt. But it's difficult, of course, to keep publishing after the restoration of the monarchy. They have to scrub out Napoleon completely from these records. Which you can't do completely. (laughs) Exactly, because it was Napoleon's thing. So we have a good quote from him. If I had not become commander-in-chief of the army, I would have launched myself into the study of the exact sciences. And since I have always had success in my great undertakings, I would have become a highly distinguished scientist. So those are pretty tall claims. He has a good opinion of himself. But still, there's no denying that his decision to bring a troop of savants to Egypt dramatically affected 19th century science as well as 19th century art and culture. And uh, I, I mentioned this book in the last episode, but I relied pretty heavily on Nina Burley's Mirage for information about just the savants' daily lives and the crocodile, you know, stuff like that. And one of her points she made that I really liked a lot was that the scientists came of age during the age of reason, but they matured during the romantic era. And the book that they ultimately produce really shows signs of both. It's got that, uh, those cold, hard observations and measurements and calculations combined with adventure and danger and art and a little bit of the gothic, too. So that's the final word from Nina Burley. But of course, we can't give you every tiny little detail we'd like from the podcast. So if you'd like to search for How the Rosetta Stone Works on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com, you can learn a little bit more about that. And that brings us to Listener Mail. So since the French went to Egypt because they wanted to mess up the British route to India, we thought that we would do a little Indian-related listener mail. And this is from Stephen, and it's in regards to the Taj Mahal episode. He said, this morning I was listening to your podcast about the Taj Mahal, and you mentioned the legend of an intended black Taj Mahal. According to the documentary and according to an article, scholars now believe that the black Taj actually refers to an octagonal pool that once existed in ruins of black marble structures, known as the Matab Ba, or Moonlight Garden. This pool, when filled with water, would have reflected the Taj Mahal, and that is what is believed to be the Black Taj Mahal. So, pretty cool. And if you have any additions you'd like to uh, tell the listeners about our podcast, you can email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We're also on Twitter if you'd like to follow us at Mist in History, and we have a Facebook fan page. And the article I'd mentioned before, How the Rosetta Stone Works, can be found on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. The Only Way is Through, a new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. 
Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood. The reason I won is because on that day I was confident. I need to continue that mentality to understand that I can be an Olympic athlete. I can compete with the best in the world and just perform. Listen to The Only Way is Through. Available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Danny Shapiro, host of the hit podcast, Family Secrets. I hope you'll join us for some incredible conversations about family, identity, and what happens to both when the secrets that have been kept from us and the secrets we keep finally come to light. Listen and subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.